Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about something that all three of us are obsessed with. It's one of the greatest threats to the world today, and we don't talk about it nearly enough. That's nuclear war. This may seem, in our post-Cold War era, like the stuff of movies. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. The Ruskies. We love Dr. Strangelove as much as anyone, but the risk of two countries with nuclear weapons going to war and using the bomb isn't just a feature of the past. It's still a very, very scary risk. Alex, you wrote a big piece on nuclear issues this week for our new section, Future Perfect, which also has its own podcast, which you should all check out. Uh, Start us off with the basics. Who has nukes in the first place? Sure. So it's nine countries, the U.S., Russia, U.K., France, India, Pakistan, North Korea, China, and Israel. Wow, take a breath there. (sighs) All all nine. Uh, One kind of quick and easy way to remember at least five of those uh, that I always do is it's the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council. So the U.S., U.K., France, China, and Russia. And then you just have to add four more, and then you've got all nine. Right. And even though— Gotta catch them all. Gotta catch them all. Nuclear. And even though there are— Nine, uh, two countries, the U.S. and Russia, have 93% of the nukes. And so for this piece that Zach alluded to, I spent a month talking with over a dozen nuclear experts and kind of talking about what the risk of nuclear war actually is. The good news here is that the risk is still small. In fact, very small. But it's not zero, and that, therefore, is scary. Right. The way to think about this is that while there may be a low probability of any of these conflicts that we're about to discuss occurring, or even a low probability of them once occurring, breaking out into nuclear conflict, the risks are so high that we need to think very, very seriously about preventing them. Today, we're going to talk about three conflicts that have particularly worrisome probabilities of escalating to nuclear conflict, right? Starting with the one that's been on everyone's mind for the past year or so, which is the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, we've been talking about that, like you said, for the last year or so, but we've been worried for for years and years because they've been like gradually developing a much bigger, more robust nuclear capability and delivery system so they could actually take the nukes and get them to the United States, essentially. Earlier in Trump's presidency, it got to a, like a fever pitch. And, you know, we've done previous episodes on it where we were actively considering like what would happen if war with North Korea broke out and how it could escalate to a nuclear conflict. So right now we happen to be in, you know, a period of diplomacy. So the, you know, Trump's threats to rain down fire and fury on North Korea if they keep testing missiles and, and nukes, we've kind of moved past that, but it hasn't gone away, right? No, not at all. Uh, you could imagine that if the sort of economic and diplomatic isolation strategy on North Korea doesn't work out, what option does Trump have left? You could imagine that if that does fail, Trump may go back to this fire and fury standing, and then the, the risk of nuclear war escalates again. But, but this is the problem, right? The underlying situation created by nuclear weapons is that when you have two nuclear-armed states and they are in some kind of conflict, as the United States and North Korea technically still are, even though they're not yeah. actually fighting yet. We're right. technically still at war formally. Right. There's always a risk that any latent tensions come out and they boil into war or that there's misperception by one side or the other one, and that turns into a nuclear conflict. There are lots of different scenarios one can imagine that happening. Jeffrey Lewis, a leading nuclear scholar, just wrote a book where he, that's uh, sort of imagined as what happened after a U.S. and North Korea war that walked through the precise scenarios in which he thinks uh, U.S.-North Korea tensions could likely escalate into conflict. It's a very interesting and harrowing read. But the point is that, like, there is this underlying level 
of risk that no matter how nice and friendly Trump and Kim Jong-un are to each other, can't be eliminated so long as the nukes are there. Yeah, having read that book, there's, I mean, it really hinges upon, like, Trump tweets some nonsense and there's miscalculation from North Korea. And so they start nuking things. They start nuking, you know, at D.C. and New York, if I recall. Uh, and on top of it, it ends up with, like, millions dead. Uh, right, but, like, during that period when Trump was tweeting out things like threatening Kim Jong-un and threatening North Korea— the North Koreans were doing things like showing photos of Kim looking at nukes and looking yeah. at nuclear plans that showed targets in the U.S., right? So this isn't like it's a fictional book we're talking about, but it's based on very real scenarios that could happen, and right? The, the tweets thing, I think, Alex, you're right to bring that up because when it comes to nuclear war, the problem is that if you don't strike back you can be annihilated in the first round. It, it builds in incentives to go first if you're facing another nuclear power and you want to try to either cripple their nuclear capacity, which North Korea couldn't do, the United States, or inflict huge costs on them such that they wouldn't want to keep fighting, which North Korea could, in theory, do to the United States and might very well want to, according to the way we understand their war plan. And if you remember former host Yoki Driesen's piece about war with North Korea, he the reporting that he did stipulated that North Korea may actually use a nuclear weapon early on in the conflict as a way to escalate tensions because they know they wouldn't be able to survive uh, a conflict with the U.S. Believe it or not, there is uh, an actual scarier scenario than North Korea, and that involves our good friends over in Eastern Europe, Russia. The Ruskies. Right. Despite Trump and Putin being so friendly when they see each other, there is a genuine fear among the experts that— the U.S. and Russia may be headed on a collision course, which could lead to nuclear war. Of course, they are the two that have most of the nukes, so that right. is always we're a concern. Like thousands of nuclear weapons, right, uh, Alex? Like, yeah, about. We're not talking like two or three. No, about the six thousand each or so. Right, more than that. So but that's about. one of the main reasons. Just before we get into it, like why the U.S. and Russia, and you know, frankly, why the Cold War was so terrifying, right. because. When you're talking about North Korea, estimates vary, but maybe around 60 nukes. When you're talking U.S. and Russia, ballpark 6,000 each, like that's enough to just annihilate the planet like several times over. Exactly. Right. And, and plus these more accurate delivery systems, which means that the missiles will likely get through, whereas North Korea could miss or not detonate. Right. So, yeah, we're talking a potentially extinction-level event for the human species. Now, it's very, again, very unlikely but it's a product of the Cold War infrastructure that hasn't really gone away, plus Vladimir Putin's uniquely aggressive foreign policy. Yes. One of the, the specific scenarios that experts keep pointing out is Putin may at some point, who knows when, decide to go into the Baltic countries. Remind uh, me what those are. Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. They are NATO members. And so by Article 5, which is the provision that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all, if Putin were to invade any one of those countries, then the United States would be treaty-bound to defend them. And therefore, that could—again, this, this is a scenario, but yeah. it could escalate into the point that maybe Russia does want to use nuclear weapons first to stave off— the U.S. or others coming in, or it just escalates to nuclear war itself. Right. There's also the other scenario that is seems less likely now, but there was a big fear with Syria, right? Right. A little bit less so now that 
that war has wound down a bit. But for a long time, you know, it's this kind of proxy conflict where the U.S. and Russia aren't fighting each other directly, right? But both of our forces are on the ground in Syria to some degree. And so there was always this chance that U.S. forces might accidentally kill Russian troops or vice versa. And that that, with the lack of communication or, you know, misperception, like Zach was saying earlier, could escalate into a full-on war between, directly between the U.S. and Russia. And that that could escalate. That was one of the big reasons why, you know, a lot of people were against U.S. intervention in Syria in the first place was the Russia issue. It was like, could this potentially bring us and Russia, who have all these nuclear weapons, into a direct conflict? I want to drill down on this misperceptions point because it's really important and might not be obviously intuitive. Right. Right. Nobody wants to fight a nuclear war. Right. Right. That's not— no, Everyone recognizes that you can't win one of those. Everyone on all sides, U.S., Russia, North Korea, whatever. The issue is that you think that you might be able to get away with something. In Russia's case, that would be invading a Baltic country that's a NATO ally, and you think the West won't retaliate and that you can break NATO. And it's a risky strategy, but maybe you'll get away with it. But then the U.S. actually won't let Putin get away with it. And so uh, you get a full-on war, and that escalates as wars do to a potential nuclear conflict. I'm not saying, again, that's likely, but it's you can see how two rational leaders can get bound up in a situation where they aren't sure what the other one's going to do, they're taking risks, and that gets you into a nuclear conflict nobody wanted. The only pushback on your point, Zach, that some experts would say is that the fact that we have these arsenals and no one wants to use it has actually lowered deterrence. In effect, there's less ability for the U.S. to stop Russia from doing what it wants. And this is actually part of the reasoning for the new nuclear strategy that the administration put out this year, which effectively says we will lower the threshold for using nukes. That's interesting. Talk me through that a little bit more. Okay, so it's kind of two points that are related. The first is the administration and its nuclear— The Trump administration. The Trump administration and its nuclear strategy is advocating for low-yield nuclear weapons. So that means— Less powerful weapons. Less powerful, smaller bombs. Right. But that make them more usable, right? Because if they do less damage, then you're more likely to use them. And doing so then, they would argue, the fact that they are more usable increases deterrence. That if Russia believes that if it invaded the Baltic country and the U.S. were willing to use a low-yield nuclear weapon, that therefore that would actually deter Russia from doing Okay, I see, I see. And the other thing is not only lowering the power of the bomb, but lowering the threshold for their use. So in the strategy, they had said that they would consider using these low-yield nuclear bombs for something like a, a massive cyber attack. That is a big lowering of the threshold. It used to be kind of like we will only use a nuke in the event of a, a nuclear war. Now it's saying that we will maybe use it in case of a massive conventional attack. That or at is, least we're putting that in our official doctrine to at least signal that you don't want to fuck with us because we might consider doing this. Exactly right. So right. this is part of this whole strategy of if you kind of, it's escalating to de-escalate. So yeah, like, God, that seems so risky to me. And risky in kind of a necessary, right? U.S. conventional forces in Eastern Europe are already, and the alliance itself are already a sufficient deterrent. So you don't need the threat of a really small little nuclear bomb in order to enhance what already is conventionally there. All it does, to me anyway, and to my mind, uh, is raise the risk of there being actual nuclear use. And there's just one last point before we move on to the third kind of potential scenario, which is that the the kind of Cold War era and post-Cold War era controls and arms limitation treaties that the U.S. and Russia signed because we both knew we had these massive arsenals. We both recognized that this was super dangerous, and we need to take steps together 
to curb and reduce our arsenals, right? And that has been really effective. Like, we've taken it down to, you know, like we said, in ballpark 6,000 each. We used to have a lot more on both sides. But under the Trump administration, especially, some of those barriers have been going away, right? So there was news just this week uh, that the Trump administration is planning to pull out of this uh, one arms control treaty. We won't get into all the details of it, but basically, it was one of the kind of broader like set of, of agreements that we have to try to control and limit uh, our arsenal, and that's going away. And we all know that the Trump administration likes to pull out of agreements that it doesn't like. Um, and, you know, Trump just said this week that, yes, we will continue to develop our nuclear arsenal, you know, unless and until other people, you know, stop building theirs. So it seems like we could be entering an arms race territory yet again. So if the U.S., Russia, and North Korea weren't disturbing enough for you, there's a third conflict uh, that it you has probably— has nothing to do with us. Yeah, that you probably aren't paying enough attention to, actually. We've talked about it on the show before, and that is India and Pakistan. Yeah, India and Pakistan have been decades-long rivals. Both have nuclear weapons. They've had several wars, two of which occurred when they had nukes. And so there's a worry that if a situation were to escalate again, that that rises the opportunity again that they may use nuclear weapons. And one of those scenarios that scare people is the constant fighting in the Kashmir region. Right. And, you know, it's a super complicated kind of issue, but in broad strokes— both India and Pakistan are fighting over who gets to control parts of this region of Kashmir. Uh, and it's in dispute between the two of them. And so they continue to fight over. It's still unsettled. And it's it's one of the most frightening scenarios that if you ask nuclear scholars, like, what's the biggest kind of potential flashpoint for a nuclear war? This is one of the three that they that they name constantly. Another important point to note here is that the Pakistani military is considerably weaker than the Indian military yeah. and right. is understood to be or has been understood to be for a long time, which means that Pakistan has an incentive to use nuclear weapons in the event that it thinks India is about to overtake its forces. Right. In this case, there's a very clear pathway to escalation, which is India coming out ahead in a potentially existential war between these two sides and Pakistan feeling that its survival is at stake. So it's a use it or lose it situation for nuclear weapons. Uh, we talked about the stuff in a lot more depth in our Kashmir episode of Worldly, which we'll put in the show notes uh, if you haven't listened to it already. Uh, but I, I want to sort of close out the segment by talking about what an, an actual nuclear war is like, right? What it would be. Be, what it would mean if these weapons were really used. One of the more gruesome parts of this piece was looking at what it actually looked like if a bomb went off. So with the help of a scholar, I effectively detonated North Korea's strongest bomb on the Capitol building. Um, Using there are the simulations. There's, just a sim to be clear. Simulation. there's simulations online. Yeah. You can actually go do them. We can put them in the show notes. Uh, some really smart researchers have put it together, and you can like click your own city and click the size of the bomb, and you know, and they're they're the size of actual bombs that exist, and see if you'd be in the blast radius, right? Like there are real scenarios that you can go online and do. Yeah, I've spotted my house on one of those in DC. It's really not not a good thing to do if you want to sleep. Right. right. So in this scenario, if I'm recalling, it's about 220,000 people would die immediately, another 400,000 or so get injured. And what you would see in this case is, I mean, first, obviously, there's a mushroom cloud in the middle, but that's not all. Though many people that are close to it within a few miles will get massive radiation poisoning. And what that is would be, I mean, if they're not burned, right, they will, uh, it's, it's, 
basically ruins your internal organs and yeah. all your cells at a like, cellular level. Right. So it's not make this super gross. I won't go into the detail, but you can look at the piece and you can see what specifically happens. There are also people who will receive third-degree burns, uh, and many of them won't feel pain. In fact, most won't because third-degree burns burn your pain nerves. Uh, so you will just be charred and skin will fall off, and it's just, it's just gruesome. We don't really have to imagine what it would look like because we've used nuclear weapons twice, Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. And everyone already knows the horrors that came out of that. But what we're talking now, today's nuclear weapons are like exponentially more powerful and bigger than that level. So just imagine that level of destruction and death and horror times a bunch. And and that's the kind of horrific stakes that we're talking about here. So, you know, not to just talk about this at like a theoretical, like foreign policy level, right? Like there are actual like human lives at risk in these conflicts. And, you know, again, it's a really low probability, but because, and especially in the U.S.-Russia case, we're talking like potential mass extinction, that it's really important to realize like what the actual like tangible human stakes are here when we're talking about these sorts of things and why having this many nuclear weapons in this many countries is so fucking terrifying. So that's where we're going to end this segment. But if you're looking for reasons to live on Elsewhere, we're going to talk about pot legalization in Canada. As you know from listening to Worldly, current events can be anxiety-inducing, and it helps to feel in the loop about topics that matter. In our next advertiser segment from Betterment, hear how staying in the know about your finances can help soothe your mind. Ten years ago, the Great Recession sent shockwaves through the global economy. And in that uncertain economic environment, consumers were gripped with fear and doubt. 2008, it was, you know, the Great Recession. People in general had lost trust in the incumbents. And I thought there really ought to be an obvious best answer to the question, what should I do with my money? But there wasn't. That's John Stein, CEO of the financial services company Betterment, which he founded because he felt the economic industry was failing the average investor. Imagine a healthcare system designed with just a shelf of medicine, and you can go and you can take whatever you want, however much you want, but there's no doctors. Just just figure it out. And I think that's a crazy way to design a system that everyone has to use. I thought, how do we help people make great decisions, put the right kind of information in their hands to help them do better? So along with a team of experts, John developed an online financial advisor that could work for anyone. Maybe you're retiring, or maybe you're thinking about buying a home or having a child in the future. We learn about those things and create goals for you and a financial plan. It's all the things that a great traditional financial advisor might do for you. But financial advisors charge, you know, maybe four times what what Betterment charges. Betterment. Outsmart average. Please remember, investing involves risk. This has been advertiser content from Betterment. Thanks for that note from Betterment. To learn more about their tools, visit betterment.com slash worldly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T dot com slash worldly. The news today seems pretty grim. It's easy to forget that there are still many, many people out there trying to make the world a better place. And those people have some pretty wild ideas. This is a show about those ideas and the weird and wonderful ways that they could improve our planet. I am Dylan Matthews, and I'm the host of Future Perfect. This season... 
we know that there are many species that are in danger of becoming extinct. So the basic idea is that often people want to donate a kidney to a loved one, but they're not a good match. We need to cut CO2 emissions. We need to cut methane emissions, nitrous oxide, all these other greenhouse gases. We're going to look at some big problems, but we're also going to look at some big solutions. Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Let's talk about how we might develop this technology to try to save species that are alive today. That's hella controversial, right? Join me for Future Perfect, a how-to list for a better future. It was the best trip of my life that I kind of wish I never would have taken. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For elsewhere, we're taking on a much more uplifting topic, which is marijuana legalization in Canada. Last week, America's northern neighbor became the second country in the world to legalize pot. Marijuana stores opened in every province except one, Ontario, and Canadians lined up to purchase legal weed. So much so that there were actually shortages— But let's talk about this from a policy perspective before, you know, we talk about the lack of weed making everyone sad in Canada. Jen, based on what we've seen so far, are high times good times? See, this is what happens when you let hippies vote. Basically, one of the big kind of concerns when you legalize pot at a federal level is that there's going to be like massive chaos, right? Because it's like a huge change to laws, all sorts of laws that deal with this, you know, zoning laws and how close you could be to schools and all sorts of stuff like that, right, that you have to deal with. So there's, like, a a worry that there's going to be, like, a massive disruption in, like, commerce and legislation and all this stuff. But it's been a week, and we actually haven't seen anything like that. It's gone pretty smoothly. And, Zach, like you said, the biggest problem so far has been not enough pot for the dirty hippies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've seen, with Canada's not the first one to do this, right? We've seen a similar situation in Uruguay. They were the first to legalize pot, and there were also not riots there. In fact, they made the World Cup and did just quite fine. So it it seems— Were the World Cup players high, though? Maybe. You don't know that. I don't know what Luis Suarez does in his spare time. (laughs) They made the World Cup. Like, that's an argument as to why marijuana legalization is coming fine. (laughs) Yes, but they also care way less about soccer. They have their hockey But there's also, like, it's not even just, like, the domestic kind of political— There's Also, like, there were concerns about international laws because some legal scholars have looked at this and said this could potentially be illegal under international law. Sure. And, you know, could cause, like, major international, like, diplomatic crises. Uh, It didn't happen with Uruguay, and it didn't, so far, doesn't seem to have happened with Canada. Right. What I find striking about Uruguay uh, is that it's become sort of a non-story in the years since pot legalization happened. I'm going to read you a line from— a report by the Brookings Institution, which is one of the, like, you know, most buttoned down of D.C. think tanks. And one of the lines is, Uruguay has done well in rolling out the implementation of non-medical cannabis. I don't think the rolling there was intended to be a joint It joke. definitely was. Okay, um, I used to work at Brookings. You think it was? And they are way less buttoned down off the clock than you may <laughs> imagine, I will say. Okay, but, like, the point is, when that's making its way into think tank papers, it right. illustrates that this is really a serious policy option, And it's right? become normalized to the point that, like, it's an actual policy conversation that, like, people are having. Right. I mean, it seems like it's signaling a change in the global prohibition of drugs. Of course, this is only 
two countries, uh, but we are having those kinds of discussions in the U.S. right now. In fact, polls will show that most Americans support weed legalization. Right, and Canada, to be clear, is a much larger and more globally significant country than Uruguay is. It's easy to make jokes. Or Uruguay. Americans. No, Uruguay's, look, um, they're not not important, but— Canada is, is a much larger economy. It has a much greater footprint in international trade. It just is a bigger deal that Canada is doing this from the international perspective Jen was just talking about. And the fact that it's gone pretty smoothly and hasn't created chaos or otherwise thrown Canadians into international jeopardy, I've heard some concerns about crossing into the U.S. now, but I haven't seen any systematic evidence of that. Maybe right. it will emerge. What that basically means, right, is the fact that like Canada has gone through— Again, you know, and this is the point that I brought up when we were talking about this uh, earlier just amongst ourselves— is that, okay, yes, it's it's only been about a week, right? Like, there could still be reefer madness, right? There still could be reefer madness because of the Mary Jane. But what this all means, right, is the fact that Canada, like you said, is like a big kind of prominent country, is that because it has gone fairly smoothly so far, this could lead other countries to go, oh, hey, okay, if Canada did it and it didn't really go spectacularly horribly— Maybe we can do it, and we should, like, not freak out, and especially if it starts becoming, like, economically lucrative for Canada and becomes a big business, other countries may see that, and it might lower the threshold, essentially, for other countries to want to move into this. So it could have larger knock-on effects. Right. There's one concept I really like that some international relations scholars put together, which is called a norm cascade. Right. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the details, but the TLDR version, the simple version, is that when a norm, a belief in international politics starts shifting, eventually when more and more countries start to adopt it or more and more international organizations start to adopt it, then you can see changes around the country. As Basically people, like a domino effect. Like yeah. one, one tips over towards weed and then the rest go flying over. And and so that could be what we're seeing right now at the beginning, right? With First with Uruguay and now with Canada uh, and now with majorities of publics in some other Western countries. You could see a, a really significant change to the global prohibition regime in not too long from now. But we're still just talking pot, right? Like, we're not seeing this kind of legalization in, in other things, right? Like heroin or even the kinds of things like— you know, needle use, right? Like Not places yet. where you can go to exchange, you know, get a clean needle to kind of reduce HIV, right? Like th there are a lot of more progressive kind of drug policies that other countries have uh, have pushed forward, especially some in Europe, that those don't seem to be necessarily like the norms on those changing, right? It's still pretty just stuck with, with hippies, pot. Not yet. All I want to know, though, is if Canada is going to change the maple leaf into a weed plant. I'm oh, my God. No, they're not going to do that. Though I will uh, I will be in Canada next week, so I won't actually be here recording. Um, but I will do some firsthand on-the-ground investigating. Are there going to uh, be edible maple syrups? Uh, no, they don't sell edibles yet. It's just leaf. Oh, interesting. But anyway, I'm going to be gone because I'm getting married this weekend Yay! to a Canadian. And we're going to be doing a, a short little mini honeymoon before our bigger one. And that'll be uh, in Canada. Canada. So uh, I want to say goodbye now to you for this week and the next. And I want to give a hearty shout out to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who is as always delightful in helping us make the show and making it great. The rest of us will still be here, though. So please make sure to listen next week. Yes, but congrats, Zach. Yay. Congrats, Zach and Katie. Yay. Woo Go have some pot. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>
Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. 